and welcome to the latest edition of Seattle Dice. I'm David Hyde, a politics reporter with NPR affiliate KUOW here in Seattle. Also, again, with us this week, the James Carville of Seattle Politics political consultant Sandeep Kaushik. Thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, and from Seattle's proudly urbanist left editor and reporter for Publicola and Seattle's answer to Pod Save America, Erica C. Barnett. I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend I get that reference, but my <laughs> podcast listening is is strictly frivolous. So today on the pod, will Washington State end single family zoning? Lawmakers in Olympia are thinking about that, or some version, something sort of like that. We're gonna get into the politics and the policy, but first. A brief discussion about housing prices, according to the Northwest Multiple Listing Service for homes and condos in the 26 counties that they cover in the report, prices rose year on year, which, as anybody should know or or may know, is really the only reliable metric. You can't look at housing prices month on month. They rose 17% of the last year. King County alone, the median price is now $810,000. And over that same period of time, year on year inventory Pending sales, closed sales, all fell by double digits. So it's basically the same old story, tight supply, high prices. That's kind of what we're talking about. But one thing I want to point out is that 80% of metropolitan areas throughout the United States had similar price increases. So uh, this may not be an instance of Seattle exceptionalism. But the first thing I want to ask about is whether or not you think housing prices are going to continue to increase in 2022 and why. Yeah. This may not be Seattle exceptionalism, but it is a big sign of Seattle's lack of affordability, right? I mean, uh, and yeah, I do think prices are going to keep going up. I mean, what's your evidence for that? History, <laughs> you know, I mean, history. Sandeep, I just want to put out that yeah. historically, you said housing prices were going to be going up when we had the housing bubble. I remember you saying that housing prices couldn't go down at that time. No, what I said was that long term real estate is a kind of no-brainer investment in Seattle because no. the future of no. the city is... No, no. You, you said <laughs> you that there are. was no housing problem. All right, Erica, Erica, what do you think? Well, I mean, I, I agree with Sandeep based on, on history that, you know, at least in the short term, I mean, we, we have seen that housing prices have continued to go up. I, I do think that, you know, we could be headed for, for, for a bust. However, one reason housing prices in Seattle have remained on an upward trajectory is they're just, they're, they aren't making more of it. You know, and we have single family neighborhoods here in Seattle that are completely or largely protected from, you know, from any kind of new development and rents are absolutely outrageous. They uh, they went down a little bit during COVID. Actually, you could get, um, you know, a, a small apartment on Capitol Hill for under a thousand dollars for half a second there. Um, but now, I mean, they are just astronomical. I was looking on Craigslist and, you know, one bedrooms for $2,700, income restricted studios, you know, are still over $1,600 a month. I mean, these are not affordable prices. And, and that is, you know, in part or largely a problem of supply. We, we've got a supply problem, but we've also got a wealth problem, right? I mean, the people that are moving here tend to be richer than the people that are already here. And therefore, the demand increasingly is for higher end housing in the rental market and and uh, and condo market and and it creates upper pressure on housing prices. Okay, so let's get into the into these bills. House Bill 1782, Senate Bill 5670 for those who are at home on their computers looking up those bills right now, probably nobody. Uh, but Erica, what would these bills, these companion bills essentially do? 
So these these bills are basically they're calling it middle housing, um, which is, you know, low density um, housing between duplexes and sixplexes would be allowed at various, you know, at various sort of sizes of, uh, of cities and in various areas of cities um, in cities with uh, 20,000 or more residents. The, the big takeaways are that single family home lots would also need to allow triplexes and fourplexes. And within half a mile of major transit stops, they would also have to allow uh, bigger buildings up to sixplexes and things like townhouses and courtyard apartments. There's also a second bill that I'll mention just briefly that would, uh, which is House Bill 2020, that would really impact Seattle specifically, a biggest city in the state, um, which would require a lot more density, very, very close to light rail stations. So up to nine, um, in some cases, even 10 stories, I believe, really close to, you know, bus rapid transit, but primarily we're talking about light rail stations. So that would require, that would basically be a city density bill. So all told, I mean, this would be, you know, in effect, getting rid of, rid of single family zoning and replacing it for the most part with very low density development, kind of along the lines of what used to be allowed in Seattle um, in all residential areas until about 100 years ago. Why are urbanists in Seattle so excited about adding density? You know, what's the big sort of ideological or economic reason why this is such a big deal, potentially? Yeah, it's a big deal because, I mean, we have had this ongoing battle, um, you know, in Seattle, particularly for many, many, many years where it's kind of the NIMBYs and not in my backyard, single family crowd that, you know, want to protect their property values and believe that allowing density would harm that. Um, and the urbanists who say, look, we have all these people coming into Seattle, they need to have somewhere to live. And if we don't build more supply, it's just going to drive up the cost of housing because everybody's fighting over the same apartments. And as Sandeep pointed out, um, you know, the people who are moving to Seattle are tech people who make a lot of money. You know, and in this last mayor's race, we heard a number of candidates talking about racist exclusionary zoning. I wonder if you could explain that phrase and kind of its significance for Seattle urbanists to this debate. Yeah, this is um, this is a huge political shift, I would say, that um, the idea of, uh, of redlining, you know, the historical practice of creating zones where, you know, both explicitly and implicitly, people of color and poorer people are zoned out. Um, that's really come to the forefront locally in Seattle in the last uh, in the last few years, and as you said, in this last election cycle. So the concept of racist exclusionary zoning is basically that you create a zone, you know, say single family zoning, which is mostly what we have in Seattle, um, and um, and that that the existence of that zone effectively prices out people who you know either didn't buy in 40 years ago, you know, as part of kind of the Boeing uh, boom. Um, when those are mostly white people, you look at our single family areas, they are overwhelmingly white. I mean, now th there is an, a, a wing of the urbanist movement, and I would say the majority of the urbanist movement now saying like, look, we need to allow more density in these areas that are historically single family, because right now, I mean, th they're both historically exclusionary, and they're becoming more exclusionary because people are getting gentrified out. And so yeah. it's a really complex debate. There's a lot of angles to it. And, and there's a lot of disagreement within the urbanist movement. But the shift we've seen is that single family zoning has gone from being kind of the third rail of local politics to people actually discussing how did this come about? And what is the racist history of this? And, and in fact, saying that it's racist is a new thing. I mean, that that used to be verboten, you know, even five, 10 years ago. Well, I, I, I will say this. So first of all, I just to be on the record, I support increasing density in, in single family zones. I will say, however, 
that running around telling people who live in single-family homes that they're racist for doing so is really crappy politics. Yeah, nobody's <laughs> yeah. saying that. Nobody yeah. has said well, that. Well, that, that's, that's what people are reading from what they hear from, from a lot of this sort of talking point from the kind of uh, progressive, you know, progressive sort of activist left folks, right? I mean, I, 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 that said... I will say that, uh, Erica, I think you're absolutely right. In the war between the urbanists and the NIMBYs, the urbanists are routing, you know, are, are winning, if not routing the, the opposition. Um, the chamber, Seattle Chamber of Commerce, did uh, polling called that they called the index that they released at the end of September last year. And the numbers are really telling because you're right. Five, six years ago, it was a third rail to talk about um, – uh, adding density in single-family zones. And now the, the polling numbers show uh, to the question of, quote, changing regulations to support more density in single-family housing zones by allowing duplexes and triplexes, 62% support in the city of Seattle. And then um, there was a piece in the Seattle Times right at the beginning of the year for a King County poll that had been commissioned that similarly showed 55% support in the city for um, – for adding uh, significant density, uh, you know, even bigger buildings in, um, in allowing them in single family zones. So I do think that has been a really rapid political shift right now. The one thing I will caution folks about here is that their, their one cohort that kind of strongly opposes this are tend to be older voters, right? There's a, there's a certain kind of uh, older voter who may be kind of house rich and, and, and income poor who feels very strongly that uh, all of this stuff, uh, you know, uh, density and all of this stuff is destroying the kind of the, the old Seattle, the old kind of Boeing bungalow sort of uh, Seattle that they, uh, that they grew up and love and to are very resistant to these changes. And we can talk about that more, but I'll stop there. Well, I will say too, I mean, on the, on the historical question of like where this came from, I think that it is not, I mean, I think it's great that these polls are showing that people are willing to, you know, quote unquote, accept um, density um, in the form of say two apartments next to their house, as opposed to one house. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think there are the, the historical precedent for this is until 1923 or so, when we started really tightening up those zoning laws and excluding people from certain areas, you know, with, you know, you can only have a single family house on a single lot type of rules. We did allow duplexes. We did allow triplexes. You can go through historical, you know, Seattle's neighborhoods right now and see, you know, very old duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes and apartment buildings that are just still hanging around from that time. I mean, and I, and I would say that I don't think that returning to historical precedent is going to actually get us the amount of housing that we need to house everybody who's moving here. Because I don't think people are going to stop moving here just because people in single family neighborhoods really, really wish that they would and really wish it was 1962 again, because it's just it's never going to be 1962 again. And I'll just add on, go down to Portland where, you know, where this looser zoning is, is, you know, the the rule rather than the exception. And last time I was in Portland, those neighborhoods seem perfectly fine to me. They seem like lovely neighborhoods. And, yeah, there's a duplex here or triplex there and, you know, a sprinkling of this stuff. Uh, and so what, <laughs> right? It doesn't affect the character of the neighborhood. I mean, they, you know, they're still nice. People like living there, you know, so, uh, I would say so it I improves think, the character of the neighborhood. Yeah. I think, the, I think a lot of the, I think a lot of the fear that you hear, particularly for some of these older folks, um, is misplaced. That said, 
running around and insinuating that they're they're racist is just going to provoke a backlash from them. And so I don't think that's the right sort of political way to go about making the change that I think we agree ought to happen. Isn't the argument that the that the neighborhoods are structurally racist and that if you live in a neighborhood that's structurally racist, that doesn't make you racist? Well, it's sort of my misunderstanding. Uh, That that is exactly what I I mean. I would say, you know, even I I would say that structural racism led to, you know, to to redlining and also led to led to single family zoning and exclusionary zoning rules in the areas of Seattle and other cities Uh, that are like seen as most desirable. Yeah, this, well, this is where where we are going to disagree, because I will tell you, even in the recent polling, right, that is showing all of this willingness to accept greater density in single family zones. The vast majority of people that were polled in this King County poll, uh, you know, at the beginning of January said their aspiration was to live in a single family home. Right. Like like so, um, you know, kind of dismissing this as some kind of historical racist legacy. Well, you know, 80% of people, that's their, if they could, that's what they would do. That's their aspiration. So I don't think it's good politics, right? Like, I mean, there is some historical legacy. I think that's, that this is rooted in in some facts, but I think people want to live in single family homes or, or, you know, buy a house with a little yard or whatever for lots and lots of reasons uh, that are perfectly legit. I, I, I don't think that if you ask most people, does a duplex next door threaten your ability to live in your single family house that most people would reasonably ask answer yes to a poll question phrased that way? Well, again, I think we, we agree uh, on the goal here, which is to increase density in single family zones. I think we disagree about the best political pathway to get there. I will just point out that the people that ran for mayor, you know, yelling, um, Oh, single-family zoning is racist. We, you know, they didn't win, right? Um, someone else won. Let me ask this question. Let me ask this question about NIMBYs, I guess, which is um, you're an older person who's lived in Seattle. You're now on a fixed income. Your problems actually, as you've both pointed out, really come from Amazon and all the money that's here, and that's what's driving you know, all of these changes, and that's why there's, there are more people here, and that's why there's more density and everything else. But the point is, like, there's no upside to, quote unquote, progress for you, you know, and I could say the same thing for some of my coworkers at KUOW whose income hasn't really dramatically increased. And yet everybody else's incomes have increased. They're still in the same apartment. Prices are going up. They're not making any more money. So why should people be kind of enthusiastic about progress? And why should why should Erica Urbanist be kind of dismissive and call them all NIMBYs when they're like, there's more traffic? I have less money and fuck those Amazon people. Like, why are you well, so dismissive and snooty you <laughs> about well, since, those people? Since we're, since we're going to be rating this one explicit, you know, I would say also, like, I have, am, have gotten all kinds of shit for being kind of fuck those Amazon people myself because, because you're right. I mean, in the absence of policies that actually build enough housing and build enough, um, you know, housing for people like me and journalists and, you know, people making 80% of that extremely high median income. Like, yeah, I mean, my quality of life has not dramatically improved as I have made more money and gotten older myself. So um, I am not on the side of like, let's, you know, let's just legalize every, you know, every kind of housing everywhere and don't subsidize anything and let the market decide. I am very much against that. Um, but I think we've also never tried progress in Seattle. We've done a very, very modest um, upzone in some areas of the city that are already multifamily. 
um, and expanded those areas by like 6%. I mean, just the tiniest, tiniest little sliver of expansion of density in the city. And that was known as the Housing Affordability and Livability yeah. Act, HALA, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and so, so we've never tried progress, actually. And so I guess what, what I would kind of, if, if I was able to make my own bill um, and convince everybody that it was a good idea, you know, I would actually go further than this bill because I don't think that allowing duplexes is, um, A, going to make, you know, much of a dent in the, uh, the supply problem and, um, and sort of not and doing density without incentivizing and without providing, you know, incentives and subsidies for lower income housing for those of us who are not moving here on $250,000 salaries. Um, you know, if we don't do that, we're, we're still gonna have the same old problems. So I think to the question of like, you know, of people, older homeowners who, you know, are house rich and income poor, you know, I, I don't think that their problems are going to be solved by just keeping everything the way it is either. David, I'll flip your question on on its head because I think there's really a point to be made here about younger renters, right? And I think as they see housing prices and rent skyrocketing and feel like, you know, um, they're at best running in place or falling behind, I think it fuels their uh, alienation from the kind of from the from the existing sort of, you know, uh, existing liberal progressive kind of establishment uh, in Seattle and fuels their turn towards kind of kind of a desire for big, bold, radical change. So I do think that's been the, the run up in housing prices has had a profound effect on the politics uh, of of that younger cohort who kind of see the possibility of ever being able to afford a house in Seattle as being completely, you know, uh, out of reach. Capitalism is broken, so we have to overthrow the system now. Yeah, that's right. When I first moved here, it was the mid-2000s, and you folks were uh, both in- entrenched at the stranger, both urbanists, left urbanists at the stranger, arguing for the monorail and, and more density, back when it wasn't that fashionable, I guess. Um, but smart growth was fashionable, and, and my observation when I moved here was that there, it, it was like Richard Nixon um, saying we're all Keynesians now. It's like we're all urbanists now. Everybody was for density in Seattle, whether it was the big developers or the people that worked at The Stranger, and I was kind of astonished by the consensus around that. And you, the only one who was sort of against it was Knut Berger, who would give these kind of fantastical arguments sort of gesturing towards lesser Seattle, but they were, I, I don't know that he even believed it himself at that point. But what is the, uh, what is the robust opposition to urbanism then or now, or this argument for density? Is there really a counter argument? Sort of like, is there any serious argument? Because neither of you are making it against yeah. greater density. There's an, there's an anti-developer streak uh, in the Seattle left, right? We see this with the Chama Sawants of the world who basically think that anything that allows developers to make money is bad. Therefore, uh, um, we need to, we, you know, we'd rather sock it to developers than kind of, I would say, than make progress on building more housing. One reason urbanism has become more palatable to more people is that I think the definition of urbanism has expanded to acknowledge that, you know, 
we can't just, we actually can't just build only more market rate housing. And one of these bills does deal with affordable housing in a very limited way. But, you know, gentrification is real and displacement is real and urbanism has to actually grapple with that. It can't just be supply, supply, supply. Because, I mean, while I think we do need a massive increase in market rate supply, we can't, we also can't just like, you know, pave over, you know, neighborhoods that where people are, you know, and I'm not talking about the the, the white Boeing, you know, bring it back to 1962, um, uh, Knut Berger of, of 15 years ago type people. I'm talking about like historically black neighborhoods, historically Asian American neighborhoods, neighborhoods that are marginalized now. Um, you know, so there's there's a conversation that's happening more on the local level here in Seattle about ways to actually enable people to stay in those neighborhoods and create housing in those neighborhoods for people from those areas um, that is happening within the context of urbanism more broadly that I think is is one reason people are, are are becoming, you know, people on the left particularly are becoming more okay with it. Maybe not Shama Sawant, but, uh, but definitely, you know, people who, uh, people are more willing to have that kind of nuanced conversation now. Sure. Nikita Oliver, right? The, the transition of Nikita Oliver, I think, is instructive in this regard, right? ran for mayor in 2017 on a kind of lefty anti-displacement kind of kind of platform that really said growth is displacing people of color and, and uh, black residents out of the CD and therefore growth is bad and density is bad and we need to stop it and 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 because that will stop displacement ran for council in 2021 on a you know urbanist let's you know build more housing public housing and other forms of housing. And so I thought that was a really interesting kind of 180 degree shift over four years and is, is kind of indicative of some of the some of the things, Erica, that you're talking about. So so if Washington does this, it would be the third state on the West Coast to do it. We're behind Oregon. We're behind Portland. And I had a question about that. How is it that Seattle, which is known to be more progressive than Olympia, is essentially behind Olympia and state Democrats on an issue as important as zoning. How, how are the politics of this shaping up that way? And how does that make any sense to either of you? Well, I think it's because the people who have political power in Seattle are by and large homeowners and people who have had a lot of money for a, a, you know, a fairly long amount of time and, and, you know, and frankly, like just don't have the perspective of, uh, you know, of the majority of the people who live in their city who are renters and who are struggling to pay $2,000, $3,000 a month in rent. I mean, that's, you know, the bottom line. I mean, we, we see this, you know, complained about in Congress too, right? I mean, everybody in Congress is super rich. Um, people who you make decisions in Seattle uh, are, you know, are at least property rich and often very rich themselves. So I think that is that is a, a factor that you can't ignore. Well, let's see whether this bill goes anywhere, right? This bill got introduced last year too, and it didn't, you know, in the long session. Now we're in the short session year. Um, you know, uh, obviously it's, it's got, I, I looked at the House bill, it's got 28 or 29 co-sponsors. So that's pretty good. I mean, I think there is some momentum behind this. Uh, I don't think advocates would be polling on it unless they thought there was a case to be made. Uh, uh, as Erica reported, there's a poll that's been in the field, uh, test messages around this. So, um, so yeah, maybe it'll pass this year. But I, yeah, I, well, I mean, obviously, Olympia has become more progressive and more more democratic. We have large democratic majorities there. And, and I think the, the members themselves, you have more people on the progressive side than there used to be. So, so yes, I do think these issues are more uh, politically salient, in, even in Olympia, than they used to be pretty recently. 
how could this possibly pass in Olympia when it hasn't yet passed in Seattle? I just don't get it. I think this is not a clear cut left versus right issue. I mean, I think this is a question of development. And I think, you know, a lot of developers are not raving leftists. So I think that, you know, this is an issue that more is a, more splits the left. I mean, you know, certainly like you're not having Republicans um, jumping up and down for for bills to allow more density. But I don't think it's as clear cut as progressives versus everybody else. I mean, I will give the example of, you know, the city that I'm from, Houston, um, which, you know, is is a pretty progressive city, but its zoning rules come from, you know, way back. Um, and the basic zoning rule is that there aren't any zoning rules. And, um, you know, and I think that's uh, that's a consequence of, of developer lobbying. It's a consequence of Houston having a lot more land, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it is it is possible to have density and have pro density policies in areas that are not um, super progressive or super lefty. So I, I think it's a little more complicated than just you know is Olympia to the left of Seattle. Yeah, I, I, I will inject a note of caution here. I mean that that polling that the Seattle Times talked about at the beginning of the year. You know that, that even in King County asking about increasing density in single family zones in the suburbs, it got fifty one percent support. So. Uh, you know, so that's good and that's a change, um, but it's not overwhelming. And I do think there's a there's a kind of Seattleization or King Countyization, if I can use such an awkward term, of, uh, of sort of sort of democratic thinking, right, and progressive thinking in this state. And I will tell you right now, some of the stuff I see makes November. Uh, and the uh, legislative races that we're going to have here in the state in November, it's it may not be pretty for Democrats. And I, there could be a if you pass this, if they pass this, you know, maybe not in King County, but in Gig Harbor. Yeah, there could be a backlash and you could see Republicans exploiting some of this stuff politically to to, to make gains. I mean, we'll see. I think there are a lot of other factors right now that if you're a Democrat, gives very good reason to be worried about what's going to happen in November and not just at the federal level. But uh, I do think there's some sense that, you know, Democrats really maybe don't have their finger on the pulse of, say, you know, that typical voter in Pierce County in the way they do for the typical voter in King County or Seattle. Pierce County, which could be important for Democrat Kim Schreier, who's hoping to hang on to the 8th Congressional District this year. And there are a number of Republicans lining up to try to take that seat. It's not Seattle, but that could be a topic for a future episode of Seattle Nice. Let us know what you want us to cover or any feedback at our Twitter account. It's at Real Seattle Nice on Twitter. You can also help keep this podcast going by supporting it. We have a Patreon account. It's Seattle Nice at Patreon. He's Sandeep Kaushik. She's Erica C. Barnett. I'm David Hyde. And thanks for listening. <laughs>